Let's talk digital. We are at the cutting edge of digital tweaks, changes, transformation. A local digital marketing podcast. Conversing with industry experts and giving excerpts about the exception. Hosted by Audrey Naidu. Sit back, relax, enjoy the conversation. I'm really looking forward to what's coming up in South Africa in the next couple of months and years. Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of Let's Talk Digital with myself, Audrey Naidu. Today's guest is Alexander Leibner, who is a familiar face in the African media landscape, both in the spotlight and behind the scenes on radio, television, print and digital for over 20 years. Apart from speaking to major organizations across the continent on the world of tomorrow, Alexander is also founder of the Santon Media Group, Described by the Sunday Times as a seasoned communicator, Alexander has enjoyed extensive stage time as a program director, panel discussion moderator and conference chair and served in a senior management role at CNBC and Forbes Africa for over a decade. Before venturing out into a digital media startup, weekly podcast and speaking engagement on the future, Today, Alexander is going to take us through the top six consumer shifts in the last 18 months and how this impacts the way we will have to market to consumers in the future. I think you are going to absolutely love the session. Alexander, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you with us. Audrey, I'm absolutely thrilled. Thank you so much for having me. You have quite an impressive CV and well done on all of your accomplishments, but I'm quite intrigued by what a futurist does. Can you give us more insight into this? Audrey, it's a great question because I think it's a question that a lot of people ask because it's not something that you normally get as a subject at school. And let me start off with telling you what a futurist isn't, right? So a futurist isn't a tarot card reader. They are, they are not a, they're not into astronomy and they're also not an actuary. So there's no looking at the stars maybe to some extent, but in a different context. There's also no uh, looking at graphs or numbers or trying to make some sort of accurate prediction of, of the future. In fact, I think futurists are very much focused on what's probable, what's preferable, and, uh, and, and that's really the most important part to it because um, what's probable very much bases a lot of the outlook on where the future is going on some here and now examples. So there has to be some sort of... Uh, I'm trying to think what the right word for it would be, some sort of uh, evidence that sits in the here and now that can give us an insight as to where things could potentially be going. Because you see, the future isn't written in sort of stone tablets. Things can change all the time, but there are some clear indicators that give us a direction or, or give us a nudge in the right direction as to where the future is going. And at the same time, I always say to people, there also has to be a preferable element to it. Because at the same time that things are not written you know, on stone tablets, we still have a chance to say, well, what would we prefer to have? And it's so interesting. I was sitting in a, in a briefing session this, uh, this week on, on digital IDs and the complexity around digitizing IDs. And we're also seeing it now very much with the pandemic, people having to get uh, digital cards for their vaccinations. And there isn't really a hard and fast rule as to how this needs to work. And this is where the preferable part comes in, where we can say, well, what would we prefer it to be like? It's not like we're bound to anything. And I think really a futurist looks at kind of the news, travels a lot, experiences a lot of things, and gets a sense of some key indicators that are pushing us in certain directions and starts formulating those into sort of potential trends, potential outlooks as to where the world is going in a positive way or in a negative way and, uh, and kind of give you a bit of insight into that. 
And uh, I think that would probably be the best way of kind of summarizing a, a futurist job. So would you say it's a combination of intuition, experience, data and insights? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the intuition part is also quite interesting because I think the more you do it and the more time you spend with the subject matter, the more you start getting a gut feel for it, where you sit down and you go, hmm, this, I've seen this before, or this looks familiar, or this is something that has, um, you know, a very good chance of, of taking off. And, you know, also what's very interesting is, is also marrying that up with uh, consumer demand. Because as a great example, 3D printing has been around since the 80s. And it's been one of those words that's reappeared again now as we talk about the fourth industrial revolution and there's going to be 3D printing and we're going to be printing arms and legs and, and, you know, and ghost guns and all kinds of crazy things. But it's been around since the 80s. It's, it's not a new technology. It's, it's been around forever. But suddenly, there's been a consumer shift that has driven us towards this technology and has suddenly thrown this technology into the spotlight and tons of money is being thrown behind it because there's suddenly a demand for it. And I think working from home and Zoom calls and working virtually is one of those examples. I mean, how many meetings have you and I sat in, forums, conferences organized by your companies or by some organization, and we've been talking about working from the cloud and working remotely and working at home. And what is, what is a great word that a lot of these big companies use? Um, you know, digital migration. And then everyone walks out of that room and they have a cup of coffee and everyone sort of looks at each other and we go, oh, yeah, that would be a great idea. We should think about that. And next, uh, the CTO or the CIO or the EIEIO, uh, you know, is, is, is sitting in the same meeting, having the same conversation. And yet March 2020, we get given a deadline. We're told in two days time, the country is going into full lockdown. And suddenly every, con every company in the country is working from the cloud, high speed internet at home, working virtually, teams are working remotely and it suddenly just happened. And that was driven because there was a consumer or a need or a demand that just suddenly fast-tracked that technology or that possibility into the here and now. And, and that's really one of the other important factors because so often you see futurists or trend specialists or whatever talking about a lot of this stuff, but it never really happens. It never really goes anywhere. It's like it just sort of sits there sort of idling around and around until suddenly something shifts it into the future. Yeah, so the big question is, so what? So we've got this information, what do we do with it? Which is why we're here today. And I want to tap into some of your knowledge in terms of you have identified six shifts in the consumer space. Um, there's a lot of content to go through. Uh, I think what we're going to do is just talk about the, the major shifts that we're seeing. And then what we will net off with is what is the impact now on advertise on the advertising industry are you comfortable with that audrey perfect okay so let's get started um i know so you and i have discussed you know some of the shifts and uh, you want to take us through the first one in terms of shift up yeah so maybe just to touch on the shift holistically so this i had to kind of organize all of this information because there's a lot of stuff going on and there's some things that are sort of very dominant and other things that kind of are floating around but are not necessarily sort of life-changing at this point. So to kind of help audiences during my keynotes or some of the talks that I do try and organize all this information having just been exposed to it, I've kind of div divided up into six different shifts mm -hmm. um, that help us, you know, kind of understand or contextualize the different shifts and then each of those shifts have like a subcategory. So that's probably the best way for people to digest them. And, and you've just mentioned shift up. And shift up are really, you know, these shifts or changes that are 
on the upwards. They uh, you know, are on the increase. These are things that we're going to see more and more of. And it's also something, you know, I suppose if you take it sort of literally, it kind of makes us gaze up to the skies and, uh, and makes us think about sort of the world beyond planet Earth. Okay, so, uh, yeah, you mentioned sub, subcategories within shift, shift Up, and, and the one that I'm, I'm most interested is in the creators and haters space. Yeah, I mean, creators are the new Hollywood celebrities. I think without a doubt, Hollywood celebrities and sort of celebrity as we've known it, they are, are they're, they're kind of going extinct. I think uh, the whole world changed specifically during the pandemic where we suddenly realized that, you know, uh, the, the well-being of a lot of uh, well-known pop stars or TV stars or even uh, movie stars, uh, you know, hasn't changed or dramatically impacted our existence during the, uh, the the pandemic. And do we really need them? Have we put them on a pedestal that maybe isn't as important as, as we thought it was? And the creators are really this digital space. The YouTubers, the TikTokers, the Instagrammers, they were called influencers at one point, but I kind of almost like to call the creators almost like a matured or sort of like a an influencer with a PhD, someone who, who kind of does a little bit more than just sort of makeup tutorials or, or kind of unboxing products. Uh, it's, it's somebody who really has taken this to a whole nother level, who's kind of built an audience. And, and if we look at some of these guys, I mean, like Mr. Beast, you know, an audience of millions, if not billions of viewers who uh, follow this guy's, uh, you know, adventures. He really puts an effort into making this content interesting, dynamic. Once again, YouTube, YouTube has its own algorithm that they have to play into in terms of telling a story, in terms of the way they structure their videos. But these are the new celebrities. These are the new ones. I mean, ask any 14-year-old, what do you want to do when you grow up? And they're going to tell you they want to be a YouTuber. Um, so that is really you know, a, a, an important factor in terms of marketing, meaning what does that mean to us? Are we still going to have Leonardo DiCaprio with a, with a timepiece, you know, advertising you know, for one of the big brands in a magazine? Or is it going to be one of these up-and-coming, even established creators that might not only just model the piece, but actually even create the ad? Uh, I was chatting to a marketing director of one of the big tech companies uh, in South Africa, and he was saying, you know what, he's actually put more and more of his budget into giving it to gamers or to anyone that plays in that tech space because they can create much more relatable content that is great quality at a fraction of the price. And I don't think it's necessarily an issue of sort of exploiting people, but just think about how much can get done with way less. I mean, a normal TV station, if you had to set up a TV station, the studio, the cameras, I mean, I think the cameras are, you know, in the region of 200,000 Rand a camera. There's a 14-year-old in a garage who's basically spent 50,000 rand and can shoot in 4K the best lighting with a, with a selfie ring. He's got an Apple, he's got the whole setup, and he's basically speaking to a much bigger audience than some of the TV channels that you see on satellite television. And uh, that, there's a huge opportunity there, and it's growing and it's not going away. On the flip side, or on the dark side of the moon, you've got the, the haters, or, or some people have now called them digilantes, um, and I know when we chatted, you also spoke to uh, this whole concept of cancel culture. Mm -hmm. But we've seen those also emerge out of the, you know, the shadows of the world where if something doesn't suit somebody, um, and, and let's talk about it in terms of favorable situations, maybe where a company has stepped out of line or you know, they've, they've, they've made an impact on, on, on the way they're doing things that isn't to totally legal or totally ethical, people will stand up and, you know, call them out and say, listen, this is unacceptable. And they could literally bring listed companies to their knees. 
it, to some extent, also these things have been taken way out of line. Where in some cases, you know, you think, well, is this necessarily something to become a, a vigilante about? But the fact of the matter is, is that these two exist: these creators and these haters. And marketing and brands have to now try and live with both of these and be very aware of them, uh, that they can both build up your brand to ridiculous levels, and at the same time, they can literally crush you within hours uh, on, on one of the social media platforms. Absolutely. I think um, I was going to talk about the cancel culture and some of the things we're seeing on social media these days and how it's putting brand um, creating more transparency but also accountability from brands in, ter in terms yeah. of their social responsibility you know how they show up um, it's very different because you can't just communicate products anymore you can't sell products you've got to look at what what does your brand stand for and your brand purpose T totally and you you also have to become so much more conscious of a bigger world because I think so often I mean, I think all the time, we see the world through the lenses that we've created. I mean, the world is the way we see it. It's not the way it is because the world is just made up of so many different factors. And I mean, in advertising, I think there's been a, a long ongoing conversation about representation and representativity in billboards and ads and kind of is advertising really reflecting society as it is or is it reflecting the art director and the creative team that's sitting behind that ad and often you would see an ad and you're going i've never seen a family like that in south africa or i've never seen uh friends like that hanging out you know as per the car ad or the soap ad or the chips ad and you know in the past you could maybe get away with it because it was a one-way conversation you know you would just push out the stuff you would put it on a on the n1 and there'd be a couple of people at a dinner table saying well you know i saw that thing on the n1 and that wasn't really you know very good and now it's unfortunately or fortunately for 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 the consumers unfortunately for the brands it's now it gets thrown into a conversation and not just a, a conversation around a dinner table a conversation which almost becomes as we now call it a family meeting where you know the whole country uh, comes together on on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever the platform is, and says no, uh, don't agree with this. This is not going to work for us, and uh, you need to remove it. You need to take it away. So and, you know, uh, basically, yeah, I mean, the shift of power to the consumers. If you look at both the creators and the haters space, absolutely. And I mean, you know, as we as we go sort of further down the list, at some point we also get to a, a, a you know a theme under the shift away. Uh, sort of uh, shift, which is uh, I've listed as the, as the fifth shift here, which essentially uh, there's a subcategory there that talks about anyone, anytime, anywhere, where people can connect to each other peer-to-peer -peer on a mass scale. So anyone can speak to anyone right now. I mean, there's no more need to go to any of the big radio stations, TV stations, magazines, newspapers. If I've got a gripe, if I've got a thought, an idea, whatever, I can literally log onto the internet and I can share my thoughts on video, audio, in written word on one of the social media platforms and potentially grow or get an audience. And that's how that shift of power has just dramatically changed. Uh, so it's no longer been controlling, you know, the little bit that used to speak to the bigger audiences. Now anyone can speak to a big audience and potentially even have a massive influence. So we're seeing almost like a democratization of advertising or communication? Totally. Democratization of, of advertising and communication is, is, a, is, is a good sort of phrase. And I think we're also seeing um, 
a sort of a, a, a commoditization of it, where in the past there was a huge value put on being able to reach these these people. So the media owners would have almost, you know, the upper hand in terms of saying, well, I've got the audience. If you want to speak to them, you're more than welcome to, uh, you know, to purchase airtime from me or space. And then you are, you know, allowed to speak to these people. And now you're seeing companies who have, who are hiring, you know, seasoned journalists, seasoned media people, and they have more elaborate newsrooms inside a company speaking to their audience directly through newsletters, social media, you know, videos on YouTube, etc. Then some media organizations. So the shift of power is there. And, you know, we can go into the discussion around, you know, obviously, you know, that companies will always blow their own horn and, you know, there's not going to be, you know, sort of a, a very sort of balanced perspective on, on what they do or what they don't do. But it just goes to show that, you know, suddenly companies are no longer at the mercy of a media organization. They now, they now have become a media organization within a division of their, of their company. I've definitely seen that where companies are becoming publishers themselves. They are. And I think maybe to some extent they're going in maybe a, a little bit naively and sometimes, you know, kind of hit the wrong, hit the wrong mark because in some cases, you know, it might become a, a part of marketing and, and they might not be aware of some of their uh, responsibilities or limitations in terms of being a publisher. But I think more and more of that is being uh, cleared out and they are bringing in the right skills and they're bringing in the right people. I mean, they've in some cases got full-on journalists writing their copy and it, it changes the game. I mean, it totally changes the game. And I mean, I think that's why we're also seeing so many media organizations going through such dramatic times because also the, reven the whole revenue model or the commercial model around media is changing on a weekly basis. And it's been doing so for you know, quite a few years. And the question is now, at what point is there a tipping point where you know, media has to be completely reinvented and rethought? No, I completely agree. Media and creative are at a tipping point and it's time for reinvention. Yeah. So let's get on to the, the next um, trend, which is shift closer. And for me, I think the, the biggest shift we're seeing there is the, the honeycomb live. You want to explain further? Yeah, I thought honeycomb is, you know, such a such an interesting uh, picture to paint in people's mind when you think about shifting closer because shifting closer is about things coming together things coming closer into our life moving into our space us kind of almost uh, nesting or you know clamping down in our own space and, and i mean we've seen it now over the last uh, two years how we've all had to move into a close environment with our closest maybe family or friends and uh, we've really kind of uh, created this hive in, in, our, in our own lives where we are, you know, we're seeing estates growing in South Africa, people moving into these um, secure estates uh, because of, you know, our crime levels in South Africa and, and looking for safety and looking for community. And this honeycomb life is sort of this combination of nesting or, or clamping down or moving into to smaller spaces and kind of almost feeling more comfortable being at home than going anywhere else in the world. And at the same time, this uh, picture of bees who are unbelievably busy. And we've become busier and busier as the years and the weeks and the months have progressed over the last, uh, over the last while. And if you, if you take that picture, we are hyper-connected. And I mean, you know, if, if, if for those of you who, who may be into, the, into bees and who've maybe watched some, some documentaries on bees or really studied bees, 
you know that bees are constantly communicating and they have a certain way of communicating. And if you take a picture of a busy beehive, there's just bees moving around and, 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 and they've got little dancers and they've got little ways of communicating and, and they're constantly active and constantly in and out and moving. And, and, and that's kind of almost um, the analogy that we're using for, for society at the moment. And we, we never thought we could get busier after um, BlackBerry BBM. And then suddenly we were getting emails on our phones. And then suddenly WhatsApp came along. And just when you thought there wasn't another way of communicating, another platform would come on. And then the pandemic happened. And I have so many people telling me, you know what? I actually never switch off. I'm getting SMSs at, or, or WhatsApps at 10 o'clock at night, at 4 o'clock in the morning because you know my company or my boss or whatever knows that I'm not anywhere else except at home because we're all in lockdown or we're all in some level of, of, of being at home. And you know it's 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 just overwhelming it's too much and and also the social media has become so much so that's kind of where that honeycomb life comes into it and obviously there's a lot of opportunities for brands for marketers for advertisers that comes out of all of that as people sort of lock down at home they want things that can come to them you know like these delivery services that have just exploded shopping online groceries and this is also ties back to what we discussed right in the beginning of this podcast where we spoke about um, this consumer trend that kind of drives things. So we've had online shopping for how long in South Africa? I remember there was that experiment back in the late 90s where this guy locked himself into a house and he had a, a 50, 56K modem and he wanted to see how much stuff you could order online. And at the time, you know, we didn't have Take A Lot and we didn't have Kalahari. I think we had like a couple of very sort of niche sites and he realized he couldn't order toilet paper and he couldn't order food or whatever. And wow, has the world changed since this guy locked down in the house? I mean, now you can literally order anything, anytime. You can even have it delivered in 60 minutes. I mean, it is really unbelievable what this period has, you know, sort of catalyzed in terms of, in terms of online shopping. And we're going to see more stuff coming along that is going to make people's homes almost like people are going to bring the world into their house. They're going to create their own cinemas and their own entertainment spaces because... I think there's still a huge worry about the world out there. The world has become very scary. I mean, if it wasn't terrorism before, it's now, you know, pandemics and, and viruses and, and, and these sort of things. So we kind of want to just almost go into a continuous type of lockdown where we rather bring the people that are near and dear to us to our space and we can enjoy it in our space rather than go into this dangerous world where you might be standing in a bar with, you know, people who've got ulterior motives or, or might be spreading some sort of virus or whatever. And that, I think that we're going to see a lot. And then also speaking to that busy bee life, we're going to see products and services that are going to help people deal with being busy and doing stuff all the time. You know, a lot of stuff has to be taken over by somebody else. You know, if you can't go grocery shopping, something has to do it for you. Mm. So, yeah, we're definitely seeing a trend in terms of um, online commerce, but also um, the pop-ups on, on grocery delivery services because everything is accessible um, and it speaks to that need for instant gratification. What I have noticed after reading an article last week is that we're seeing a shift from e-commerce into Q-commerce and Q-commerce talks around quick commerce. Uh, what does this mean for brands now in terms of the customer experience and taking um, the, the delivery and customer experience to a whole new level? Yeah, look, I, there's always been this, this concept of the sort of halo effect or sort of, you know, 
other brands doing something and it rubbing off on you. So to take to take a, a you know maybe a, a rough example, if one company is doing something, there's automatically an expectation from other brands, other companies in that field that you should be able to do this too. I mean, I find this a lot with, uh, with airlines when I was still traveling internationally. So if I flew with Emirates and Emirates could give me, you know, 15 different options in terms of what I want to eat before I get onto a plane, or they've got a, you know, their ice entertainment system that has, you know, thousands of movies and I can listen to the radio and I can watch, you know, TV shows and whatever. I'm now expecting to get onto a Lufthansa flight or a Qatar flight or a Swiss air flight or whichever airline you choose. And I'm expecting the same thing because I'm going, well, if they can do it, surely you can do it as well. I mean, this is not, you know, uh, sort of, you know, copyrighted or painted ideas. And the same thing is now happening in a lot of other things. So if one company is now saying, listen, we can deliver your, your food to your doorstep in 30 minutes, other retailers in that space are now expected to do the same thing because, you know, I mean, they can do it. You should be able to do it too. And that is now going to be quite interesting. And also, it'll be interesting to see how this doesn't only translate into food, because at the moment, I think it's very much dominated by food. You know, mm. it's either grocery shopping or ordering from restaurants. But could it start impacting on other retailers? So people who are not necessarily in food, but they're selling hardware or they're selling all kinds of other things. You know, let's say I'm, I'm halfway through a paint job and I realize, oh, geez, you know, I've run out of paint or I need a particular color. And I'm now, you know, in my paint clothes and I'm dirty and I don't want to get into a car now and drive to the hardware store. Can I pull out my phone and just go clunk, clunk, clunk? And, you know, 20 or 30 minutes later, a guy rocks up with a five liter paint and I can carry on doing my work without having had to leave the house. That's going to be interesting now and seeing, you know, how people are going to start, on the one hand, demanding it and on the other hand, supplying uh, those kind of services. But on the flip side, is this not going to make people lazy? I wouldn't say it's going to make them lazy, Audrey. I think, you know, if we, if we look at, let's, let's go back in time, right? And we look at when the motor car was invented and people went bananas. I mean, the, the horse and carriage owners, you know, probably lost their mind. And we probably saw similar scenes like we've seen with a lot of other things uh, at, at the moment where people are saying it's absolutely ridiculous, like we're not going to adopt this car, like there's no way, we, you know, the, the horse and carriage business is going to go to hell, we're going to lose so many jobs, etc. And if you look at that business sort of in the Victorian age, right, so there were people who had the horses, people who had the carts, and there were people who fixed the wheels, and then there was a whole group of people who literally had to walk around on the streets and pick up all the horse manure, because horses just went up and down the streets and just, you know, there was just manure everywhere, and you couldn't just let the stuff, you know, fester in the streets. People had to go around with buckets and things and, and pick this up. And this was considered sort of a, a career or a full-time job. And the moment, you know, and then also, and, you know, for those people who are sensitive listening to this, maybe just like, you know, go make a cup of coffee for, for three seconds. But, you know, if a, horse would, if, if a horse would, 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 you know, would be exhausted or old or, or give up, they would die in the streets and somebody had to come and move that horse off the street. Now, these are horrible jobs. I and mean, if you think about it now, you think, my goodness, if I had to do that for the rest of my life, I would actually, I would cry. Now, when the car came along, all of that disappeared. And I have a feeling we're going to see a very similar thing with a lot of these other things. And if you, if you look at, you know, a lot of futurists talk about how we're going to go into a time of abundance where technology is actually going to make life easier. Because you're thinking like, you know, let's think about shopping, right? I mean, you drive to a mall, you have to find parking, you have to pay for parking. Then you have to walk around aisles trying to find stuff. Half the time, you know, the staff doesn't know where the stuff is. He said, you know, do you still have a, you know, a, a lamb shank? And they're like, oh, I think we got some. Let me have a look here. And then they go to the wrong aisle. And, you know, 
it's like two hours of your life that just disappears. And you're thinking, what have I really done with that hour, you know, with those two hours? Yes, I've strolled through the shop and I've bought whatever I needed to. But if you could just remove those two hours, you've suddenly got two hours that you can do other stuff in. Maybe it's play with your kids. Maybe, I don't know, build a tree house. I don't know what people do these days in their houses. But it frees up time yeah. for you to do yeah. other things. And, and it's the same thing with robots. You know, when people say, oh, AI is coming, robots are coming, and take away all these jobs. I mean, there used to be a job which was an elevator driver or an elevator operator. That's somebody who used to stand in an elevator the whole day and he had a key and had a thing and then people would get in the elevator and say, I need to go to the fifth floor and he would turn his key and do his thing and get us to the fifth floor. What kind of job is that? That isn't, a, I mean, when, when uh, automated elevators came and he lost his job, he was now open to do something else or maybe take on another career or another job that was more meaningful than standing in an elevator the whole day. And the same thing here, if we could get robots who could do our dishes, who could you know, vacuum our, our, our rooms and we're really seeing some of this technology popping up. Um, it means that we can go do something else. We can do something else with that time. So I think that leads itself into the cognitive shift. Yes. So cognitive shift is really something that, uh, you know, kind of takes us down one road and then we do a complete 180. It's sort of almost like not what you expected or it, it, it kind of just turns our world upside down and we kind of almost go in the opposite direction. And, and one of the, the sub-shifts there is, um, it's called E for Elevated, although the E could stand for a couple of other things as well, like experiences. But essentially what we're seeing is, is that we're going to see people go absolutely bananas after this pandemic. I mean, coming out of the pandemic, I think we're going to see the biggest parties we've ever seen. We're going to see the most illustrious travel we've ever seen. I mean, people are going to, there's this great, this great term called revenge travel where people are literally taking revenge on lockdown and the pandemic, and they're going to book that trip they've always wanted to do. Maybe it's Disneyland, maybe it's a, a yacht off the coast of uh, the south of France with a big slide and jet skis. I mean, people have, are sick and tired of being stuck at home. They want to do something else. They've realized life is short because they've lost friends, they've lost families, they've lost colleagues, and they've said, look, you know what? If this ha hits me, if, if something like this happens again, I don't want to be on my deathbed thinking about I should have gone to the Maldives and I didn't. And I think that's going to be a massive thing for, um, for tourism. And I think Africa is right up there. I think there was a, a survey done in the United States where a lot of Americans said, well, you know, an, an African safari would be right up there uh, as one of those things that they've always wanted to do and have never done. So I think we're going to see a lot of that kind of stuff happening. And at the same time, just living life. You know, we've seen it after the Black Plague. We've seen it after, you know, World War II. We've seen it after a lot of really hectic things that have happened in, the, in, in in the world where people come out of these times and it's just a time to kind of celebrate life and and kind of just make the best of what we have left of life because we've just realized that you know things are just uh, can, can be taken away so quickly and uh, i think brands are going to be doing or should be doing a lot of things in that space so i don't know if it's necessarily organizing major events at that point when we get to that point uh you know sponsoring major events uh, you know if you're in the in the fmcg market producing products or services that'll enhance people's mood that'll alter people's mood in some way or another uh, that'll help people sort of live an elevated life if if that's sort of the best way of summarizing well you might see a shift from traditional sponsorships to these more experiential sponsorships 
Yeah. So, you know, it, it's not going to be sort of a, a very mundane sort of, I don't know, picnic on the side of the, you know, the river. Mm. It might be something a little bit more exciting. It might be sort of like Tomorrowland meets, uh, you know, some other sort of, you know, audacious gathering where it's, you know, everything and anything, you know, bubbles, foam, you know, fireworks, the whole lot. I mean, people are really looking to, to really have uh, the most incredible time um, post all of this. What about um, alternate, uh, alternative realities now? Because we're seeing that, similar to that, offline experiences, we are moving into this metaverse space. Yeah, so I think that's also um, another big thing that is going to come out or has come out of this, this pandemic. Um, they have been in lockdown. People have not been able to go outside, do anything. And they've had to go online. And it's interesting when I, I did a talk for, um, it was event organizers right at the beginning of this pandemic. And I said to them, look, guys, you are, you know, uh, in a difficult position right now because nothing is going to happen for a while. Even if you organize an event that ticks all the boxes and, you know, you've got people spaced out and all of that kind of stuff. The question is, will people want to come? Because there's no point in organizing an event and everyone says, well, look, you've done all these things with masks and sanitizers, et cetera, but you know, we, we don't feel comfortable in coming. And I said, well, what if we took all of these Zoom calls and these virtual events that we've had to go through and take it one step further and, and turn it into a virtual reality thing? And unfortunately, not all of us own a virtual reality headset. I actually got myself one a couple of we months ago, and it's incredible. I mean, the content's not quite there yet. I mean, there's still a lot that needs to happen there. But what an experience it would be if you could really take this one step further i mean you can literally sit in your living room put on a virtual reality headset and you can be part of an event that feels so real and so um you're so part of it i mean you're sort of in you're sort of submersed in it but you haven't left your house and uh, I, I know that the the bathroom and catering facilities will probably be a hell of a lot better than going to a stadium but if you take it for a sporting event for example i mean imagine watching one of your favorite premier league uh, games with a virtual reality headset, it feels like you're sitting in the stadium. You've got the sound. You've got the visuals. I mean, it's all in 3D. I mean, it's all, you know, perceptually looks great. But now you can actually switch camera angles. So you can sit on the side of the stadium. You can sit at the top of the stadium. You can sit in the change room if you wanted to and be part of the pre-briefing. That's something that normal um, attendance would never be allow you to do it. And I mean, a stadium could probably sell... If you look at FNB Stadium, what have they got? 90,000 seats? I mean, they could probably sell those 90,000 seats 10 times over because there's no physical people in the stadium, but they're all virtually connected through these headsets. And if I can take a step backwards on, on this entire development, if you look at what television did for theater, so theater was great at one point, but then television came along and television suddenly changed the theater experience. And I think it's the same with movies and it's the same with, CDs. So suddenly CDs changed the radio experience. So with radio, I had to wait for my song to come on. So they got CDs and I could listen to the song whenever I wanted to. And virtual reality could change the way we consume television or the way we attend live events for the better. I mean, if I look at sport on television these days, I would say that the television experience is better than sitting in the stadium sometimes because I don't get commentary in the stadium. I don't get camera angles. I can't watch replays. I can't get all the important data and information and stuff that a television screen can give me. And virtual reality could take that a whole, to a whole different level 
And if I still prefer going to a stadium, augmented reality could add a whole other dimension to it. So I could be wearing my glasses that has augmented reality built into it. And while I'm watching the game, information could pop up on my glasses about the different players and what the situation is and maybe vital stats or, or changes, all of that kind of stuff. So it really enhances your experience. And I think this period has been such a time of innovation and consideration for this technology. And um, we just saw a face bring out this new workspace uh, technology where they want Facebook to be this new space of collaboration in a virtual environment. Uh, there might be a lot of CEOs who go, well, I don't necessarily want to sit in a boardroom and look like a cartoon while I'm discussing the annual uh, board report, but it'll come because yeah. 10 years ago, that CEO was uncomfortable about sending emojis on a WhatsApp and now they're probably like emoji kings. You know, They probably use five at the same time when they communicate with people. Well, already we've got avatars at work, so we're moving into that virtual space. Yeah. So I think people are becoming more comfortable as we progress, but the, the pace of change is so fast. So my question is, all of the shifts that you, you're speaking to us about, is this the new normal? Are we going to go back to a time pre-COVID in terms of these consumer shifts? So from where I'm sitting... I think we're going to get back to a level of predictability. I think that's the important part. I think going back to normal as we knew it is, I think we're, we're, that, that ship has sailed. We're not going to go back to that time that we knew, you know, two years ago. Things are going to fundamentally change. We're going to see it when we travel. We're going to see it with, you know, large gatherings. There's going to be certain things that are not going to be the way they were. But what we're looking for right now, I think, is predictability and some sort of consistency. I think that's what people are missing the most, is saying, well, if I plan something for next month, I know it's going to take place next month and we're not going to be shut down or moved or whatever. Like, that's, that's the thing, you know. And, and look, the, 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 the pandemic or the, the viral outbreak is certainly not just going to end on a Monday morning, one, one sunny day. We're going to have to learn to live with this. We might be in for mutations. We might be in for uh, you know, other vaccines that will come to the party. And if it's not this virus, there's always a chance that there could be something else that comes up. And we've now seen, because we're so interconnected as a world, how quickly something like this can spread. And I think we're going to be very cautious going forward as to when something does appear somewhere, how quickly it's going to be locked down or, or contained. Because we know that if we let it run loose... Literally, we're going to go through another 2020, 2021, and nobody wants that. I think nobody wants to go through this again. I think we've done it now, and it's one of those things that you do once in a generation. So it's going to have to be managed, and it's going to have, we're going to have to learn to live with it. But I think as long as we have predictability, as long as we know that whatever business I'm in or whatever I'm doing, I'm going to be able to carry on doing that, and I'll obviously have to adapt and change. But that is, I think, sort of one of the most important thing, you know, things to keep in mind. Okay, cool. So, Alexander, my last question to you is, if you knew everything about tomorrow, what would you do differently today? You know, there's certain trends that you can do something about right now where you can kind of get in and you can and make things happen. And there's other things where you kind of have to hold back again. And let me give you sort of a practical example. So, nostalgia is one of those, those, those big things, you know, sort of this deja vu, this sort of, longing for the things of the past. And that's one of the things that 
has been on the radar for a while and I think continues to be on the radar. And if I was a brand or a company right now, that's something that I would potentially do right now uh, is tap into that longing for nostalgia. If it's cokey pens that smell like lemon and, and, and guava and all kinds of other things, or if it's certain songs that are coming back with either a very 80s or 70s feel or they are remixes of old songs or if it's you know this um, this cottage core trend where people are going back to sort of the countryside basics of wanting to bake bread and 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 knit their own things and and buy, do thrift shopping those are things that you can tap into right now because uh, you know that's something that is as has been on the horizon is on the horizon continues to be on the horizon then there's other trends that are a little bit harder to to maybe you know pin down um, and that might be space travel or the space economy. Uh, it's some, I mean, just this week, we've had William Shatner go into space, um, which I thought was a little bit entertaining because they said, look, William Shatner is the oldest guy to go into, into space. And I thought, well, he's been in space since the 1960s. Surely he's been part of Star Trek and he's been on the USS Enterprise. I mean, he's been traveling around space forever. But anyway, that's a, that's a futurist joke. Um, so, so, I mean, where, where in your lifetime have you turned on the TV and almost on a weekly basis, people are going to space as if they're catching an Uber. And suddenly, it's sort of like not even a news story. Like, people aren't even, like, gathering around TVs and going, oh, my goodness, like, mm. William Shatner's going to space. It's just like, oh, yeah, okay, I think William Shatner went to space today. And I think next week, you know, uh, Elon Musk might be going or Richard Branson's going again. It, that's, how, that's how crazy it is. Yet, it's going to be a little bit harder to suddenly take action. I mean, none of us have got, you know... 500 million dollars or whatever lying around to just sort of make it happen but maybe there's another angle that you can take on it and it's something to watch and find your timing in that trend or in that growing segment where you can step in and say okay cool i think here's an opportunity for us to kind of step in and and take advantage of that or, or make something happen with it. well now that we are aware of it i think brands have an opportunity to look for you know what they can do currently and uh you know, what they can build in preparation for the future. How can uh, listeners get access to these trends or even get you to speak at their corporate event? Well, they can visit my website. It's uh, alexanderleipner.com. And I know the spelling might be a bit tricky, but maybe we can sort of, you know, make it, a, you know, put it up somewhere and they, okay. they can visit it. Yeah. Or uh, they can connect with Unique Speakers Bureau. They can speak to Paul there. Uh, you know, he, he manages all my, uh, my uh, diary my my bookings and you know it's so interesting you mentioned this as well in in connection with the previous question is that i feel that a lot of companies and a lot of organizations don't take the time to think about what's going to happen next and you know in in the talk that i do at the moment it's called the shift has hit the fan and it's not a spelling mistake it's actually called the, the shift has hit the fan uh it's there's one of the questions that i ask that a lot of boardrooms have probably been throwing around saying what if we do nothing and something magical happens? And that's exactly what happened with, with the pandemic. People did nothing or they didn't, you know, they kind of thought about it or there was a risk meeting at some point and someone said, well, what if we all had to stop working tomorrow and we all had to work from home and someone said, yeah, but that's never going to happen or let's put it down on the agenda and then, you know, we can sign off on it. Um, and, then, and then suddenly something happened and everyone was caught off guard. So for companies to sit down on a quarterly basis, on an annual basis, get their teams together and have this kind of conversation and have someone facilitate or maybe just spark a few questions and say, well, where are we right now? What, what could be coming? Where is it going? Is this something we could do? Because 
quite honestly, when, when, when I chat to organizations or to associations or companies, I'm not coming there with sort of a book of answers and go, well, here you go. Um, you know, just go through it, work through it, you know, launch this product, do that, do that. You know, that's, that's not really uh, the point of it. The point is to kind of sit down and say, look, this is what's happening. This is where it's at. These are the, the, the little dots that are popping up. Does it, does it potentially affect you or doesn't it? Have you thought about it? Or could there be an opportunity? Or It's almost, like, it's almost more like a workshop. It's almost like a, a think tank that you're mm. getting people together and you're kind of having this conversation. And Audrey, I know we're running out of time, but I just wanted to quickly mention this. I had a presentation to a whole bunch of executives down in Durban in February 2020. And one of the slides that came, came up was this discussion around this virus that had broken out in China and everyone sitting at home uh, creating discos in their bedrooms and doing workouts in their living rooms. And I got blank stares from an entire room full of very senior people in very big businesses in South Africa thinking this guy has lost his mind. We are not going to have discos in a bedroom or work out in our, in our living room or you know, bake bread or whatever. And yet a month later, there we were sitting doing exactly that. Mm. And what I encourage this audience listening to right now is don't be that crowd. Don't be those blank faces. Accept everything as possible or probable and then look at what might be preferable. And that's really what, what I think is, is, is really important going forward is make time to have these conversations. Yeah, I think you're completely right. The opportunity is endless for brands if they just make time to reflect and ask themselves, you know, so what? What does it mean for our business? So, Alexander, thank you so much for your time. I think the session was really informative, insightful, and something that we can actually ponder upon. Thank you so much. Thank you, Audrey. Okay, take care. Bye. We're excited. You're excited. I really value and appreciate your support during this time. Helping decision makers navigate the change and keep some change in their pockets. Don't forget to subscribe. Follow our Instagram handle at TalkDigitalZA. Engage us on our website at TalkDigitalZA.co.za. And who knows, you could be featuring on the next one.